Hello, and welcome to another Fish on Friday, the man with the beard. Getting prepared for the lockdown, and I'm um, anticipating that it's not going to be over till Christmas, so I'm getting prepared for that Santa Claus job at Jenner's, if it existed. Um, <sighs> Erdinger time. Weird days recently. Um, we did a lot in the garden in the last week. <clears throat> we had a lot in the garden. I did uh, containers, I had 36 containers of tatties. First early, second early, blah, blah, blah. This isn't the Funny Farm Kitchen Garden page. It is the fish page, but I know. And I've had a couple of mixes. I got um, a fantastic mix through from Carla Malcolm of the song that's going to be opening the album, which is called Grace of God, that we played at Aberdeen. And um, he's... I was kind of wasn't very sure where the mixes were going, and then just last night I got one sent through, and it was just it was just bang on. I'll I'll play a bit of that tonight. I can't play it all, but I'll play a good section of it kind of later on in the program. I'm going to be here. I'm planning to be here for about an hour and forty minutes, hour and forty five minutes, right? So if this goes off, right, don't run away, right? Well, I'll, I'll come back. It might take me a little bit of time, but I'll be back. Um, as I say, it's been the garden most of this week and then sending stuff to Dave Barris. So uh, it's been, Simona's Herb Garden was up and running and put up and running, which was fantastic, which was, um, that was a good film. And if you want to check out some kind of garden feeds and other stuff that I do, go to the Funny Farm, Funny Farm Kitchen Garden on Facebook and you can see the bits and pieces. But I mean, uh, between that, today I had big Royal Mail, well not a talk with Royal Mail, but a roll, I talked with Fuse Metrics are doing the, the mail order system. And that's all moving ahead slowly but surely. It's, um, you know, it's another couple of weeks. We just want to make sure everything's properly tested before we kind of launch it. So there's been that. <coughs> Loads of other bits of pieces, but I mean, just the lockdown has been kind of strange. And the weirdest one was that uh, my, my daughter and her boyfriend had to come across to uh, pick some stuff up that they needed and drop some stuff off for me. And um, and it was really strange because you know we had to keep a distance, and you know, it's the natural kind of father thing. It's like you know you want to kind of curl your door, and it was very weird for both of us, kind of being in that situation where you're standing kind of four meters away from each other, going like, "Hi, how are you doing?" You know, it's uh, and it was she was only down for half an hour, forty minutes, had to go back, which was uh, it was great to see her, but it was um, just here you don't really. You, unless you go out in the car and go down to Tesco's, you're not really aware of it. You're kind of stuck in this kind of little bubble in the country and you don't really see the kind of... Um, um, you don't really see the... Uh, I don't... I forgot. Because you're stuck in this little bubble in the country, you don't really see what's outside until you go in a car and you drive down Harrington and it's kind of near deserted and things, and you stand in the cute Tesco's without the Grendel mask this week. I didn't take the Grendel mask down. But, um, but yeah, so you're, you're not really aware of it. So when my daughter came in the other day, it was kind of, and then, you know, we're automatically enforcing it. And, you know, Rab has been helping me out in the garden uh, in the last week because we have been running up against it. I mean, it is a, a big spot. And, uh, but again, social distancing and rubber gloves and things and, and you know, it's, um, you know, 
but as I said, you know, we're in this little bubble. But I digress. I'm okay. Everything's good. Mum's good. Simona's good. Liam's good. And uh, I got a lovely 24 bottle collection, which I'll, I'll tell, I'll show you later. I got a, a, a carton of bottles, a box of bottles of, of alcohol-free beer. But I'll show you them later on. Right. Jason Kenny, ever thought about writing an authorised prequel to Espadale Street? Now there's an idea for your retirement. Must read that book again. Jason Kenny. Um, Espadale Street. Um, Espadale Street, for those who don't know, is a book written by a Scottish writer, novelist called Ian Banks, who was a friend of mine a long time ago. And... Um, I had never heard of Ian Banks. I heard about the, his first his first book, The Wasp Factory. It was like you know, it was a, a big hit. Very, it was quite cult when it came out. Very kind of indie, and then it kind of went into the mainstream. And uh, I was kind of aware of that, but I wasn't aware of Ian Banks really. And I had to do um, uh, an interview. And it was for Nave magazine, believe it or not. Some of you, it's been posted on a number of little, little um, group chats and things. But I, I actually did a, an interview and a photo shoot for Nave magazine, which is a gentleman's magazine. It was just kind of basically soft porn, but it had articles in it. You know, the same way as Playboy or whatever. And uh, I was interviewed for it. And it was Neil Gaiman who did the interview. And... Uh, long before Neil became the Neil Gaiman that we know now. So Neil and I did this interview, and obviously, with it being Neil, it was a really interesting interview. And he said to me, have you ever read the, the book Espadale Street? Have you ever read it? He said, it's Ian Banks. I went, you know, who's Ian Banks? And he said, you've got to read Espadale Street. He said, because it's you. He said, this book is about you. And I went, nah. I said, I've, I've never met a guy. I said, I've never had a discussion with him, so I couldn't possibly be the kind of subject matter of the book. So, you know, my interest was piqued. And I went out and bought it. And the character, Daniel Weird, who happens to be a bass player, moves up to Scotland, big band, lives in a kind of deserted church that's his studio and stuff. And I started to see all the similarities. And it was, it was, um, it was quite strange you know, to, to read it. It was a great book, really fantastic book. And I thought he captured a lot of the, the kind of musician characters, you know, the, the people from Daniel Weir's band and everything that was going around him. He caught it really well. And I got in touch with Ian and uh, we had a long chat and he declared that he'd, he'd never, he hadn't based it on me at all. And there was, he'd read a couple of articles about, I think it was like Jim Kerr for Simple Minds was part of an inspiration for it. And, um, but we became really good friends and, and it came down here and I talked a lot about it because I mean I always it, you know it was kind of if there was ever going to be a screenplay written I would have loved to play Daniel Weir which would have meant me learning how to play bass learning how to play bass but that's easy so they say <laughs> Steve and um, anyway so we started talking about Espadale Street and I, and I actually wanted to, to I thought I'd, I could really I, this could be my first screenplay and the years kind of passed by and I got into, I actually got in touch with his agent stroke manager because she was called Mick and we tried to buy it we tried to buy the rights to Espadale Street 
And it was like the money was just crazy. It was just, we just couldn't afford it. And it was, you know, at that time in my life, it wasn't, the, the last thing I needed was another project that was going to turn into being a major black hole. But Ian, he actually came down here and, and we talked about, I remember after Bosnia, when we'd been to Bosnia and he, him and Mick actually came for a meal here at the house and we got very, very, very drunk, very, very drunk indeed. And he, ne he never forgot his time here where he actually had to excuse himself from the table because he was just, the room was spinning rather swiftly. And um, I mean, we, we, had, we met up quite a few times. He was a lovely guy, a really beautiful guy. And, uh, you know, when he, he, when he was, um, when he was told that they had the terminal cancer, that was a real shock. And uh, I sent a letter to him at the time, just saying, like I, well, saying I didn't know what to say. And he came back and he said, it's all cool. And he said, he said a beautiful thing. It was, uh, he said the, the great thing that he'd had was that basically he lived his life and he traveled and he'd done a lot of things through the work that he did. And it wasn't like a lot of people where, you know, they reached that retirement age and they were ready to like, okay, I've done my work, I've done the 95, I've done all that, now's the time to enjoy my life, and then go and bang. He said like, you know, at least he'd had the chance, the opportunity to, to, to have a fantastic life. And it was a really beautiful, positive thing that he wrote, but he was, a, he was a very clever guy, very intelligent man. And I wish I'd actually got to spend, you know, more time with him, but sadly I never. But Espadere Street is a book, you know, it, it was, I think he's, one of his friends got the chance to do the screenplay on it and it never really happened. And there's been a, I think there's been a radio series on it. I think there was a, there was a, a, a radio series, Espadere Street. But I mean, you know, I've looked at it and, you know, there's, there's been a lot of really bad books that have been written about, you know, musicians. And it is one of the ideas of mine for the future to write a kind of either a novel or a screenplay or a series. And I've talked about this with a couple of people who've been interested in this, but writing about somebody that was kind of, you know, an old drug star and how he was dealing with his life and the stories, which goes back to the autobiography question that always comes up, you know. And one of the problems with the autobiographies is that like you can't, you, you gotta be very aware of slander and legal issues. So yeah, if I was to write something that was a fictional kind of TV screenplay, I could take a lot of the kind of dodgy items and kind of wrap them up in fictional characters, which would make everything okay. <laughs> so, slaps on an earlier. Frank Thompson from Denmark, hello. Jim Collins, I knew Ian Banks' mother. Uh, Sean Macho, big man from Liverpool, thank you. Adelson Faria, hope you come to Brazil soon. I love album Real to Real. Good. That's a good album, that was. Um, Paolo Roberto Lisa. Um, Nicky Marsh, my 13 year old, said, Hi, happy birthday to you. Need a shave. You look like. Was it? You look like Uncle What? <laughs> oh, I've lost it. Oh, cool, Grizzly Adams, yeah. I was going to do it. I did actually think about about taking it off, but I thought I'll, I'll grow up for a wee bit more. I'll let, I'll let you start to get itchy, and beards are no good in the heat. Jan uh, Anderson, don't you miss being really, really drunk? <laughs> no. 
the one thing I really don't want in lockdown is hangovers. I don't, you know, hangovers are a really bad idea. I'll stick to the alcohol free. That's, what's that, four months now? Uh, Michael Curran, Buckham. Hello. Okay, I'll do a question because it's all those. Um, uh, oh, yeah, there's a couple of Oh, Stu Pond. What is your favourite dinosaur? <laughs> I've always been partial to a Tyrannosaurus Rex. I've always admired the big guy. I like his lethal killing powers and the extreme violence. Um, okay. Hugh Button. Hello. I was watching Darth Strait's Alchemy on Sky Arts last night. Can I ask you about your relationship with Hal Lindis, how it came about, and its involvement with Vigil? And Adam Frame had a similar kind of question, which was, uh, after your first solo album, Vigil, did you look to work with Yannick Gers again? Hal Lindis came about. Um, because... I felt we needed a we needed a, a, a guitar writer. Frank Usher at the time he was involved wasn't really a writer at that stage. He'd never really written anything, and so the bulk of the writing was was falling down to Mickey Simmons and I, and Chris Kimsey, who I've mentioned in a previous uh, kind of broadcast. Chris Kimsey, the producer of Miss Blue Clutch at Straws, Internal Excel. When I left Marillion, Chris and I were in touch and we were talking a lot. And Chris was at one time, thought about maybe producing the solo album, but I can't remember for what reason. It never happened. Um, <clears throat> but Chris suggested to me Hal Lindis, and Hal Lindis is an American, and Chris's wife is an American. And Hal Lindis's wife and Chris Kimsey's wife were great friends. Chris obviously knew Hal because of the musician-producer kind of links. And it was Chris that suggested um, Hal getting involved. And he came up and he was great. He was a lovely bloke, really nice bloke, <coughs> very down to earth. And he was on top of all of that, he was a brilliant guitarist and he had a really ear for melody. And it was State of Mind was the, the, the first track that Hal and, and Mickey and I worked on. And it was, it was wonderful. And the big problem was that I couldn't afford Hal Lindis. I couldn't afford Hal Lindis's wages on a tour. It was, it was too much. And he was looking for something a lot bigger than, than my outfit as well. I mean, uh, we didn't fall out or anything. It was just, it was just an obvious kind of th thing to happen. It was a shame because it, it, it might have taken a different road if, like, if, if Hal had been in the band because that was when I decided to go for the two guitarists because when I went solo, the one thing, the one position I knew that was going to come under the greatest spotlight was the guitar position. And anybody that was coming in was going to be compared to Steve Rullery, right? And... I thought it was time to kind of have a rethink and have a think out the box. And that's when I decided to go for, for the twin guitar. It was kind of an, an obvious way to go because Frank was predominantly um, um, a lead guitar player and I need somebody that could do more rhythm. Hal Lindis was, as I said, in the frame for that position, but it was Robin Bolt that was the, the, the guy who fitted perfectly because I knew Robin from Aylesbury. I knew... Um, I'd played with him a couple of times 
and he was a great guitarist and he was perfect to come into the twin guitar position where Robin was taking most of the rhythm parts, Will Leeds and Frank was doing most of the solos, you know, were rhythm. And having that deflection in the band meant that the guitar, the guitar piece or the guitar impact wasn't being uh, as scrutinised as it would have been. And again, it gave me a slightly different sound. It gave me options because in Vigil, as I said, you know, you had Hal, you had, there was Yannick was playing on there, you know, there was Frank was playing on there. So having that twin guitar gave me enough guitar coverage throughout the whole thing. Um, Yannick got involved. I'd kind of known Yannick from Dipping About. It was, this was before he joined up with uh, Bruce Dickinson. And I'd, I'd, I think I met him when he was with Ian Gillen's band. And, or he was around about the period when he was in Ian's band. And he's, you know, Northeastern lad, Hartlepool boy. And I mean, I, I love his, he's got an incredible sense of humour. And uh, he's just, he's a beautiful person. And, Hal, and Yannick and I got on really well. And that was when the, uh, the initial kind of seeds of the solo band were being sown. And I was going to see, you know, who was going to grow into what position. Mickey Simmons was obviously the keyboard player. The drummer, um, uh, Mark Brzezinski, uh, took on the role. Again, Mark I knew for, from his years with Big Country and I knew him from his work with uh, Pete Townsend's big bands and he'd worked with Simon Townsend. And Mark was an easy one to get. The bass player at that time came in because Mark Brzezinski went, I know somebody who can do that and gave us his brother. Um, Steve was good, but I mean, you know, it was uh, eclipsed by bass players. I mean, he was he was actually covering for John Giblin, who played bass on the Vigil album. But I mean, uh, but that whole t thing around that time was kind of quite amorphous, especially, like I said, the guitarist position. But I think Bruce Dickinson came along and Yannick moved to Bruce Dickinson's band. I thought Yannick was just a little bit too heavy rock and, well, and I thought that Yannick and Frank wasn't going to work because I was going to have two big solo players and I needed something that was more rhythm. And, you know, that was kind of where the move went. And that was how the, the Frank and Robin situation kind of came around. Um, but Yannick and I have, have stayed in touch. I've, I've been at quite a few Iron Maiden gigs over the years. I mean, Iron Maiden questions is another completely different thing. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, Yannick and I have, have remained friends, although I, I see him very, very rarely. And Hal Lindis uh, actually got in touch with me just after Velchmerz and said, are you interested in doing some writing? <laughs> Sorry, mate, you're late. <laughs> Two months late. Uh -huh. But yeah, so there were uh, good times. Back to the thing. Uh, hello, oh, was that? Hello from me in Portsmouth. Andy Farrar, one of her neighbours was named Kaylee after a song on Misplaced Children. I think I know her, she works in a bar down there. It's, uh, Martin Nesbitt, Desert Island Discs, ever been asked to be on? Yeah, I've been on Desert Island Discs, but it's um, a long time ago. But it's the same thing. <clears throat> Every time somebody asks you for, like, you know, like, what's your 10 favourite albums? They just ch they change all the time. It was like, up there at the back, was uh, people were saying, oh, there's uh, John Martin's Bless the Weather album, and that had been played in vinyl recently. And just a couple of days ago, Simone and I were sitting out in the sun, and we were going, oh, we're going to play... And I was looking through the vinyl, and because I've not, even though it's locked in, I've still not managed to get the vinyl in alphabetical order yet. So every time I go looking for something, it's, it's, it's kind of pick and mix. And I found it's a beautiful day. 
And I hadn't listened to that album for ages. I bought it years ago because it was kind of an, an influence on the doors and a lot of people had said it was a, a, an amazing album to listen to. And you should check this one out. It's, uh, it's very kind of 60s. And because we'd been watching uh, The Patriot, and we were watching the series called The Patriot, and a lot of that kind of music on it was this kind of uh, jokey, acoustic electric 60s, kind of 70s vibe thing. And I just threw this on, and it was really, it's beautifully simple, and it's not organic. Don't use the word organic! It's, it's lovely and simple, and there's no kind of frills. It's just melody and voices and guitars and nice placements. And so It's a Beautiful Day was on vinyl the other day. So, um, but as I said, you know, picking 10 discs out, nah. Uh, uh, Alan Cunningham, hello. Dean Davis, hello. Mark Skinner, hello from Yorkshire. Oh, what was that? Well, can Queen and Two? I don't want to talk about Queen and Two yet. I'll keep that for another one. Uh, Stuart Ormish, Orm, Ormisher, Ormisher, Highfish at the Leamington Spa Convention when Bobby Davro uh, called called Mickey Simmons was that a planned event? Um, and no, it wasn't. Bobby Davro did actually phone Mickey Simmons on stage uh, the, during the, the the day day events for, for Leamington Spa. Mickey's got loads of friends. Mickey, it was a, I've been asked a few times about Mickey. The last time I worked with Mickey, <coughs> I love Mickey. He's a great piano player, a great keyboard player, and he's a great writer as well. And he was, him and I, during those first two albums, it was, um, it was an incredible partnership, and I wished it had gone on. But um, in 1993, when, you know, the, when I went into the Songs from the Mirror Suits phase, um, there was a couple of things happened. It was like Mickey got offered uh, work with somebody else that was far more lucrative than anything I could offer. I was kind of disappointed. <clears throat> I was a bit pissed off with it at the, at the time. But, you know, it was one of them things that you just have to deal with. You know, people, you know, I think, you know, I've had, there's been some bands that I've taken musicians from and there's been a couple kind of got a bit stampy feety about it all and going like, how dare you pinch out a musician? It's like, well, it's the rule of the land. It's like, you know, if you're able to offer a lot of work to somebody and offer more wages, then, you know, that person is going to follow that, you know, unless they're in incredibly loyal or they're involved in a cunning plan with that particular musician. But I mean, most session musicians, you know, you're, a, you're in a, a game where, you know, if you want somebody, you know, you have to, you know, you have to pay and you're going to lose people. I've lost people so many times because uh, um, people have been offered more lucrative gigs. And there's a lot of musicians that have been really, really cool about it. And, um, you know, I remember John Young, who's a, a great friend of mine. I love John to bits. He's a, another great keyboard player. Silly like Donald Trump. Wonderful guy. Beautiful person. Wonderful guy. So clever. So clever. Um, John Young... Um, joined the band and uh, John had been in and out with Bonnie Tyler. He did a lot of work with Bonnie Tyler and the Bonnie Tyler work, because of the wages they got Bonnie Tyler, he used that to fund the whole lifestyles thing. And he, he signed up for us on a tour. I always wanted to work with him and he signed up. And um, he came out and we did the first couple of gigs and there was a phone call came in. 
and the scorpions were after John Young, right? And John, to give him his absolute due, right? He came to me and he said, okay, I'm rehearsed, I'm in the band, we've done the gigs. And he said, I've been offered the stupid money from the scorpions. You know, can I do it? Or if you say no. And I went, you know what? Find me a replacement keyboard player, right? Find me a guy, stick with it until the guy can switch over. And I said, you can go and join the Scorpions. And that was a really, it was a gentlemanly way to deal with it. You know, how can I say no? It was like, the, he was on a lot more money than I could ever even dream of paying him. But the way he dealt with it was an incredibly gentlemanly way. And I've, I've always remembered them for that, the way he did it. Now, I've had people in the band that have done it another way, which I'm not going to discuss here, but it's like, and uh, those are not on my Christmas card list, right? But it goes with a it goes with the territory. It's like when you're operating a session band, you hire musicians, and sometimes people offer bigger hire fees. And you know, for example, we're, we're Robin and and Howard Jones. I mean, you know, last year, Robin was going out away with Howard, and Robin's got a, a great relationship with Howard. You know, he's been there since early doors in, on Howard's career. And when Howard asks Robin, then, you know, I, I expect to lose Robin for that face. But, I mean, that's why I've got Marcel uh, Signor as guitarist at the moment. That's why I worked with John Mitchell last year. And that's why, I, you know, I worked with, with other people. And it's good to have a pool of people that you can kind of call on so you're not kind of, you know. But if somebody gets on board and somebody shows up for a long-term thing, then I've got, there's a loyalty from me to him as well. So that, you know, if somebody signs up and comes on for the duration, then, you know, then he stays in. You know, it's not a case of, um, you know, oh, well, there's somebody better along the road they're going to replace. The people that are in the band and are, are, are there for a reason, you know. And the, the current lineup I've got is the lineup that's going to be going out whenever they open up the doors and see if we can let the circus go forward again. Um, which reminds me, I've got to say on here, it's a bit, happy birthday to you, Marcel. My guitarist was birthday yesterday. It's Lange. Um Where are we here? Martin Kelly, I had the recording of She Chameleon done at the Mayfair. Was it in Soggy Hall Street recorded in nineteen eighty two? Oh, keeps on jumping. Where are you? Too many people on. I missed it. See, this is a problem of reading the questions over here. Because, hello, fresh from Ellen, John Ross, Mike Oakley, Leeds. Hello. I can't see it. Send the question again. Hope it goes by slower. All right. Another one. Mike Brearley, hey Fish, two-part question from me. You have some surprising ticket stubs on your bathroom wall, along with the expected Yes Genesis, etc., namely Echo and the Bunnymen, Teardrop Explosion, The Clash. Have you always had an eclectic taste, or was that just a phase? And which of all the gigs you've attended were the most memorable? Blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, I've always had an eclectic taste. Um, you know... I started off listening to the Beatles. I remember, you know, the Beatles when I was really young and, you know, the She Loves You and the Parlophone kind of this. My mum and dad bought the Parlophone singles for the Beatles. I remember going to see Hard Day's Night, which I thought was a brilliant film at the time. And, uh, and 
you know, the Beatles films, the Beatles were a, a, a huge phenomenon, you know, for, for me as a kid. It was like, you know, the first guitar I ever got was this plastic thing that had, it was orange and, and it was like, I had there's these burnt bits of the Beatles heads and the, 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 it was all graphed. And with nylon strings, it lasted about two days till I sat on it, right? And that guitar was, that's another story, but that guitar was given to me because my dad was going to buy me a real acoustic guitar and I didn't like them because I thought you just hit the strings and they played tunes and they didn't. And there was all this tuning stuff. So I was given the orange Beatles guitar for a Christmas present. And uh, like I said, it lasted two days. But I mean, um, but the, the eclectic taste came from, I think, you know, I, I used to buy a lot of those Top of the Pops records, you know, the, the the ones that had the kind of scantily clad lady on the front. And I think I bought them really for the scantily clad lady, you know. But, it was, uh, but I used to have them all piled up and things. But I mean, but that was bands that were, the, the, those the original Top of the Pops albums. I can't remember what they were on again. Um, what label they were on. But yeah, those, those Top of the Pops albums, it was, it was basically the tunes of the day that were kind of re-recorded because they couldn't license them. It wasn't until Now We Are Music, blah, 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 came along and started licensing the original recordings. All of these Top of the Pops ones were actually re-recordings done most often by not by top session musicians. And you'd actually be surprised if you found out some of the guys that were singing and playing on those, those Top of the Pops albums because they were dashing at studios and doing an entire album in a day. But I mean, you know, I used to buy them, so I was listening to lots of different types of music, although sung by different people, but different types of music. And then it was when I was 12 at Dalkey's High School that I was introduced to kind of progressive rock. And that was Emerson, Lake and Palmer, uh, which was ELP1, Tarkus and Pictures. Um, Genesis was Trespass and Nursery Crime, and then eventually Foxtrot. And... Uh, Yes, Fragile, and the Yes album. And those were albums that were kind of going around when, within my friends, little group of friends, John Marshall. Hello, mate. It's all, hope your garden's going good. And, um, and I was introduced to that music. And the thing was, that I was, a, I was always a big guy. And it was like, you know, when I wanted to get stuff, it's like, we used to get on the back of the sounds of the Melody Maker, which were kind of weekly papers. You had these adverts for jeans and caftans and clothes and like, fashionable stuff. They never had my size ever, right? And the, the shop that used to sell the flower, the flowery shirts and stuff, your flower power shirts and stuff, when I were up there, not a chance in hell of getting a, that size. And when I went for a suit, it was like, would you like it in brown or black, sir? Right, that was it. So fashion was never gonna be, glam rock was never gonna be my thing. You know, I was never gonna be one of those kind of well-dressed kind of kinks people, right? And prog rock, I think it was the shabbiness of prog rock drew me in. <laughs> the fact there was no uniform and, you know, it was like, and, um, and I, I loved the words. And I, th I think it was words that led me into a lot of uh, writers and, and musicians. Um, um, I love the expanse of words. I mean, although I still to this day, I don't understand what John Anderson writes about. But, you know, there was, I think John, uh, Pete Townsend especially, The Who, I love The Who, I love The Faces. I loved Elton John. Bernie Toppin's lyrics are extraordinary. I loved, uh, um, who else was in there? McCartney I liked then, but I prefer Lennon now. I think that's just an age thing. It's like white and red wines. But, uh, um, but I mean, I always listened to lots of different music. And 
And I always had a kind of rocky sense, like, you know, when it came, I always liked to rock out a bit, which was, and Marillion was sometimes a little bit frustrating, you know, and, you know, when you just want to get your head down a little bit. And um, so when Incommunicado came along, I was like over the moon, you know, it was kind of, that was something, you know, hard and heavy. But yeah, but I've always had an eclectic taste. And as I said, I mean, I mean, even now, you know, as I said, I'm listening to Beautiful Day, John Martin. Um, I was looking for Crosby, Stills and Nash the other day because uh, I fancied putting on some Crosby, Stills and Nash vinyl and opening up the French doors and just being in the garden because Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young especially just, it's just sunshine music, you know, sunshine music. So, into the things. Dear Pritchard, I'm a chip now, fair done. Sonia Brooke, they were on Hallmark. Well done. Those Top of the Pops albums were on, on Hallmark. Bob Falk, what instruments do you play? A gazoo. That's me. I don't do any instruments. Oh no, Darren Wells says it's the Pickwick label. Oh no, consenting voices here. Slendry uh, Nygaard, Billy Hammer. Hello, thank you. Top of the Pops were on the KTEL label. KTEL didn't happen until a lot later. They're not on the early Top of the Pops albums. Another one they said, Top of the Pops, they were on Hallmark. And Elton John did a few, that's correct. Elton John was one of those, one of the, the players that did a, did a number of those, those stuff. Ah, Top of the Pops albums, David Botham. Happy days. Linda Everson Moser, hello from Moscow, Idaho. Brilliant, hello. <laughs> Moscow, Idaho, that's great. Moscow, I'm from Moscow, Idaho. Um, oh, the festivals, I should tell you. Um, I got word at the beginning of the week that the festival we were doing in Skanderburg in Denmark, gone. Hopefully I'll be on it next year. Uh, Erlangen's gone, and I'm still waiting on full confirmation of the Transylvanian Festival. And I'm sorry, Romanians, but I think it's going to be, it's not going to happen. Um, I cannot see that happening. The Irish Forever Young one is still scheduled for the end of August, but, you know, let's just see what happens. I only, I react. When somebody says stop, I stop. Um, the October-November stuff is still got huge question marks on it, but it's still there, it's still in the books, and that tour and the December UK dates and everything else. We, I just have to keep on going until I get told, no, you can't do it. So I don't get upset about it. I'm kind of in the back of my mind, I'm going, I've got all this to do. And if somebody said, okay, the tour bus is outside, get on it, then I'll get on it. But... Uh, at the moment, you know, we just have to deal with it on a day-by-day -day basis. And uh, as I said, you know, losing the, the July ones now, um, the July and early August ones now, you know, I'm anticipating that it's going to stretch a bit longer. Um, you know, as I said, we're doing okay. You know, we've got the garden, you know, we've got the merchandise. Oh, an interest, funny thing. It's great. Spotify. Streamers. So... It's, it was a, we were notified by uh, thinking through Spotify saying that you're because of the situation that they're, they're able to put on a little uh, thing on the side of a nominated song and seemingly if you you can you can tip basically that's what it is, you can tip it right so it's it's like people, stream, stream uh, the streaming people spot well, Spotify are saying like they've got this little tag on the side of the your 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 artist profile so like you can kind of drop a tip in the hat you know. Oh, that's great. So I've gone from being, you know, an international stage dweller, right, and 
big band, playing all the, play, doing all the, all the motions. I've gone from that to being an Ethernet busker now. <laughs> so if you, I, I, I think what Spotify should actually do, they should put a little kind of emoji, a hat, you know, see a hat, and then you get this coin drops in the hat, right? And then there's the sound of a ting, and then you get, and then the, 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 then the artist should be able to actually do the, thank you very much for listening to my song, sir, madam. Thank you very much. <laughs> ching, thank you very much for listening to my song, madam. So that's it. So I'm an Ethernet busker now, um, which is interesting. Like, oh, great. I'm up to, I'm, I've now got, oh, a couple of things. It's uh, my Spotify. There's uh, the number of people that follow me on Spotify now is 60,000. 60,000. Who would have thought? 60,000. Well, if 60,000 people bought the album, I'd be laughing. Right? So if you're on Spotify, have a think about the artist. Thanks for listening to the song, mate. Anyway, what else was there? Oh, yeah. On the charts this week, Grendel, Grendel, Grendel was number six in singles charts. Would you believe it? <laughs> it's like being in a parallel world, isn't it? So lockdown, virus, and Grendel's number six in the singles charts. <laughs> Somebody's having a laugh. Somebody's having a laugh. But it's, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and the other thing is I got news today from uh, Warners that Script for Justice here is number five in the album charts in Germany. You know, it's, it's just <laughs> time folds. It's something to do with time folds. You know? <laughs> I'm going to wake up. I'm going to wake up. <laughs> Yeah, so, but similarly it's on, on downloads, so, because uh, the album, you can now get script for justice here on the download, so, you can ignore all that superfluous artwork stuff that Mark Wilkinson does, all the sleeve notes and all that, just get a download, get a download. <laughs> but, as you say, it's useful for when you're driving around in a car, yeah. So, okay, let's go for this. Oh, I'll quick loose. Stephen Young, Erdlinger Alcohol Fry. Erdlinger Alcohol Fry. It's really good. It's got vitamin D and B12 in it. It's like, you know, this is like hydroxychloroquine. It's really good. It defeats the virus. Nah, it doesn't. But it is actually a really nice drink. But it does say it's got reduced calories, which is good. My wife, Simona, she was on the, the cross training last week when I was doing the filming for the tatties. And I'm starting to feel really guilty now. I've got to get, I've got to go into the cabin and, and get on that cross trainer and get on the yoga mat. Isabel, I promise I will phone up the yoga person and I'll get on the yoga mat. I've got the beer for it now, so. Uh, oh, Dean Davis, last week you mentioned having scattered cores, live DVs and storage. Any chance they'll be back on the fishing? I said I've got the Scattering Crows things and we were going to have a look, but the garage is so full of t-shirts and stuff at the moment that are waiting to go out. We cannot access that part of the garage at this moment in time, believe it or not. It's like, this isn't an Amazon warehouse. It's that like we've got a garage out there and a container. And uh, the Scattering Crows DVDs, I think, are at the back of the garage, but we'll have to go in there and fight spiders. Big, big spiders, big, enormous spiders. And uh, we'll track them down. So if we do have them, they'll go up. In the same way, it's like, you know, I said we've got all the t-shirts. We've got all the tour t-shirts. And 
they're sitting in, in the garage at the moment and in the container waiting to go out, but I want to wait until they get the new mail order system all singing and dancing, set up, primed, before we launch anything else. It's working fine at the moment, it's clunky, it's steam driven, it's like, doesn't do what we want it to do by any stretch of the imagination. But the new one will, and I want to hold off putting up, off anything else up or driving the merchandise until I, I get the mail order site sorted up so that you don't have to get tracked and signed for, for everything. You know, you'll get options and hopefully things will become a lot slicker and hopefully they'll become a lot cheaper as well. So it's like, so I mean, that's the mail order thing. Um, uh, Slatina Yovcheva, Grendel should be number one. Yeah, yeah, should be number one. It should be a Christmas song. It's like, it'd be great, Christmas number one, Grendel. 19 minutes of progressive beauty <laughs> played down the radio as a Christmas song. Ed James sounds like it's time for a reunion tour. I don't think so, Ed. I think you're on something that I'm not. Uh, no, John Watson, you must be joking with Grendel. It's, no, I'm telling you, it, is, it was actually number six in the singles charts on Wednesday, right? I don't know what's in the charts. I don't, I don't deal with the charts. I remember back in the day, it was like everybody was like, you know, when's the chart position? I, it's um, and because we sell ourselves, like Marillion and myself, because we sell our own product, it doesn't matter how many we sell. They're, they're not liable for for charts on. So if we sold fifteen thousand albums on on through the mail order system they're not eligible for it's not an eligible chart number because we're the only artists that sell our own products so obviously there's some unscrupulous people out there who would lie about it but it's like but that means that we can't do it which is a shame uh no don't go trumpy no ah heroes mark Snowden. Marn Killies. I heard a recording of Shikamillion done the Mayfair was it in Soccer Hill Street recorded 82 as you just signed to EMI. Oh, fuck. Ah, it's gone off the thing. There's this thing about this Mayfair 1982 uh, film. There is a film of the 1982 Mayfair show and it was shot on a single camera from the, the the back of the hall. I've actually, I've seen it. I don't have it, I don't think. I think I've got it on a VHS, sitting somewhere in a very dusty drawer. But there was a single camera video shoot done of the Mayfair in 82. And she came in and yes, it could have been a, a very, very different version. It was, um, um, we were still playing about with that, with that idea back then. I can't really off the top of my head remember exactly what it was like but I think it was I think it was a bit more rocky and in your face than the the version that um that came out but there is a, ver a film version 82 I mean I don't know it's it's not a legal piece of um film work uh but uh, I've not seen it come up on on YouTube if if I find it where it is I'll let you know it's like just for a wee bit of fun <laughs> right uh Jose Silva, Fugazi years, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Daniel Richa, Rica, Seville, Spain, hello. Luis Hadden, sing with Foo Fighters. Sing with Foo Fighters, nah, don't think so. Uh, 
I don't know, I'm trying to find questions. Grendel record it again. Oligaro Hernandez, in your wildest dreams, mate. Right? No. Right? God, Grendel with subtitles, yeah. I've got, there's no real questions in there. People from New York, hello. Right, okay, let's find another question. Oh, have you ever thought about producing, this is Sa Sandy Fearful. Hello, Sandy, how are you doing? Sandy Fearful, have you ever, Sandy works at Rasmussen's Merchandise, or the company that does my merchandise, which is probably why he's asking this question. Have you ever thought of producing a range of t-shirts or other merch that's not based on the current tour? A lot of shirts in the market these days are vintage style. Would you ever consider bringing out a range of retro fish marillion shirts featuring old designs? I'm sure they would be da da da. Also, a turntable slip map. I'm... The problem I have, right, is that I'm not Iron Maiden, right? And I'm not. Um, uh, let's just say a, one of a, a big merchandising boy band, right? And shirts can be really hit or miss. I mean, in sizes, I mean, the, the number of times we go like, oh, we'll buy small and blah, 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 or buy small sizes, and then, you know, everyone wants small sizes, and then you get left with lots of different shirts. It's really difficult, you know, and to do the prints, I mean, you know, for example, the, the shirts that, that are going to be going on sale in the next two, three weeks from the last tour, I think they were 12 screens to print. You know, these aren't black and white shirts. It's like 12 different screens to put the different colours on and from the design. And it's expensive to put up the screens. And the cost of the screens has got to go into the cost of the shirts, right? So it's not, you're not just buying the cloth, the, the, the cloth shirt. You've got all the print work that goes on there and the origination of the screens and, and moving the artwork from, you know, basically a photograph and developing it all the way down to the screen. So it becomes expensive. Therefore, you know, going back over some of the old shirts, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'd love to do another vigil shirt, you know, where the, when the remaster eventually comes out. And, you know, maybe internal So It'd be nice to do, but I think it's really got to happen in numbers. It's uh I think we have to look really carefully because, you know, we're, we're just, as I said, we're not, this isn't a big organisation here and I can't afford to, like, invest a lot of money in, in stock where it's all kind of tied up and you're waiting to sell through. I mean, the script for Jester's tier remasters from Warner's, I mean, we're still selling, selling them on. There's still Blu-rays and, and vinyls left. I mean, there's about a third of our stock's been left, but we still have them. But I mean, at the same time, you know, when I bought that stock from Warner's, I had to buy it in advance. And that was a huge lump of money for all those, for, you know, three and a half thousand albums between vinyls and Blu-ray. And you had to pay them. And you're sitting there going, whoa! And it's the same with shirts. And that brings me on to the vinyl question as well. Everybody keeps on saying, yeah, vinyl, great, you know. But if you're ordering small quantities in vinyl, it becomes very expensive. Right? And the only way that vinyl really works when you're ordering like 3,000 or something of vinyl. And it's the same with the, the, most of the, all of the, the albums we put out here. All the hardback books, we have to order them in big quantities for them to make sense. Otherwise, they just, it's just, they become so costly. So it's the same with shirts. Yes, I would love to do these old shirts and, 
you know, we probably will at some stage and I'll, I'll probably do something on the website once we get this kind of new version of it up and running where people can say, yeah, they'll sign on and get for that. And I think it's going to be the same with vinyl where we're going to have to take, not pre-orders, but we're going to have to get people, yes, I'm interested in doing it so we know where to aim for because we can't afford to go out and buy 3,000 vinyl albums of every album in the, in the, uh, in the catalogue because we don't have the storage for it. But like I said, it's just a huge economic outlay, you know, and so we have to do it bit by bit. They'll all come out at some point, you know, but at this moment in time, I mean, my entire, you know, having lost the UK tour and having lost the festivals now, it's like money that you were hoping was going to be filling up the war chest as you move along. So, well, the Velschmerz album, it was like the idea was you put Velschmerz together and move it forward. The UK tour was supposed to fill up the war chest, enable like this to happen and for that to happen. And then you'd sell that and then the festivals would, would count it. So you were, you were kind of topping up along the way. I don't have top up anymore, right? So the, the, the whole top up from UK festival, the UK tour and the, the European festivals is gone. So, you know, I have to kind of dance a little bit on my feet. I'm all right, you know, it's, uh, we're not going to the government and asking for money. I don't want to ask the government for money. I don't need to ask the government for money. I don't want any money from the government. Um, but, you know, we have to kind of box a little bit clever, clever on, on how we deal with it and how the kind of, how, how we move forward. So, um, you know, as I said, you know, what I can't do at this moment in time is buy 3,000 uh, of 6,000 vinyl albums, uh, old titles, because it just puts an unnecessary strain on where I'm at with a Veltschmerz album. I think once we come through the COVID thing, once we come through, once we come through this, then I can reevaluate it. But at the moment, the focus has got to be on Veltschmerz. The Veltschmerz album comes out in uh, the end of September. I've got a beautiful deluxe setup that I'll tell you more about in the weeks to come. There's a beautiful deluxe package. It's got the Blu-ray on it and the various bits and pieces. And, you know, I've got to talk to Will Smith about doing the interview for the, the Blu-ray as well, which is, um, we have to manage to, we've got to find a way to do this in the lockdown as well, you know, because we still have to do it to deliver all the pieces in July to move towards creating the album for December. So, uh, like I said, I mean, I've just got to think clever and be positive and move forward with it. I'm not putting the album back to next year. I'm definitely not doing that. And um, I've just got to run it. And like I said, I mean, rather than investing in side projects, I've got to invest in the, the main project, which is Veltschmerz, and, and just run with that forward and forward and forward. Well, what funds we've got available for it, which is kind of, you know, that's the way it is at the moment. So... T-shirts, final. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd love to do, you know, we thought we'd do a Funny Farm Kitchen Garden T-shirt as well. I, mean, I was thinking, to do Funny Farm Kitchen Garden T-shirts, garden materials. So you got a little trowel with a, you know, fish signature on it. <laughs> it's a, a little apron, you know, a Funny Farm Kitchen Garden apron. But yeah, I mean, that, that's something we thought about doing. I mean, to help brace up the garden, because as I said before, it's like, you know, arm. I spent 60 quid this morning on uh, semi-shade plants. I've got to, I have to stay off the internet because I go up, oh, plants, so that looks really cool. I'll have one of them, two of them. And I've got that spot off, oh, get one of them. 60 quid this morning. <laughs> Hellebores. 
Bought some Elleballs today because I love them. They're really nice plants. Check them out, Elleballs. H-E-L-L-E-B-O-R-E-S. Uh, but yeah, so I've got to kind of watch what I'm doing. So concentrate on Velchmerts and stay away from buying, buying plants online. <laughs> stay away from garden stuff. Uh, uh, Greg Whitten, any good memories of the Down the Glass Castle sessions? Yeah, I've got some, there was some nice stuff. That's a kind of another question. I'll, I'll talk about that in our time. So, the Down the Glass Castle thing was kind of, that was the, the the album that never was. It was, um, I've got a lot of memories for that stuff, but they're not necessarily musical. Um, uh, Stephen King, Interweb is going crazy again. Da, da, da. Nick Pack, are you writing more during lockdown? No, I'm not. It's, uh, I'm actually really busy. It's, um, you know, as I said, I'm, I, I was out, last week I was putting tatties in the garden. As I said, I did 36 containers of six different types of tatties. And I had a, a bed dug over. Liam, my stepson, helped me. And Rab, who works in the garden sometimes with me, he popped up for a couple of days and helped me out with regulated social distancing. And, um, but, uh, but yeah, I've been really busy. I mean, like I said, dealing with the mail order questions and that kind of stuff. And then dealing with other kind of office blurb and accounts and usual stuff. And I've been listening to the mixes. So, you know, I've been listening to, yeah, Callum Malcolm has been sending me mixes to write, so I'm evaluating them. And then I'm talking with Mark Wilkinson about uh, artwork and other bits and pieces. And then Steve Vances, we're comparing mixes. And then there's the other stuff, signing scripts. I mean, you know, it's, uh, you know, every day, just when I'm about to do something, Simona goes, you need to sign. And then there's a big pile of scripts I've got to sign. And uh, so and between that and then and doing the videos in the, in the Funny Farm Kitchen Garden, I mean, we did Simona's one that's on the, the, the Funny Farm Kitchen Garden set at the moment. I think it's, it's about 20 minutes, 25 minutes long, right? And we do, we, we're trying to get one, a, a big video out on that, on the Kitchen Garden site every kind of week. And then I do this on the Friday, so there's a kind of balance between, you know, the garden side and the, the music side. But, uh, but yeah, but I've been really busy. And um, I mean, to, just before I came in today, I mean, this afternoon, I was, I was sowing my leek seed, four different types of leek seed and some celeriac and uh, celery. And then I was in here and then I was, I was an hour on, a, on a, um, a conference thing regarding the mail order site. And then it was like running into here and beyond on air. So it's, it's busy, you know. Uh, oh, da -da. Oh, school's by so fast, he's trying to get it. What's my favourite fish marillion t-shirt? I don't know. Uh, what's my favourite one? I know one of my favourite sweatshirts, and, and Simona still wears it, the, the Vigil in the Wilderness of Mirrors uh, tour sweatshirt. So she wears one of those all the time. And I do have, I've, I've got fond memories of those, that, that the, the fish logo with a kind of, that really emerald kind of green vibe on it. That was pretty cool. Um, what ones did I really like? I really liked the 13 Star one. Mark, I know Mark Wilkinson had a real problem with 13 Star because that was the first one when we did the kind of special packaging and 
Mark had done all this incredible artwork for the inside, and I went, we need something really simple on the cover. And I addressed this uh, on the last podcast when I was talking about Misplaced Childhood, when Misplaced Childhood was the first kind of album that we did where we went in the CD format and went to rethink the album cover and had to get something small, direct, that you could see on a, on a little piece and see it on a shelf and go, that's a Maroon album. And I think with 13 Star as well, there was the thinking behind that was I wanted that star, which was a star that I'd seen painted in there hundreds of thousands on the, the, the ceilings of the tombs in Egypt, where I went to, uh, to visit way back in, what was that, 2000 and early 2007. And uh, when I saw the, the, the ceiling of stars, that was what I wanted as the same album. And I really liked that shot. Uh, um, another one I really liked was, the, it was a Fortunes of War one, which was for the single one. I had the bullet, which and the bullet was coming through a big poppy. I liked that one. That was quite a cool one. But I mean, the rest, I mean, <laughs> hundreds, man, hundreds, wardrobe full of t-shirts. Um, uh, Jan van Vucht, Fish, any contact with the boys from Palace? I've not talked to the guys for ages. Some of them, you know, I hear every now and again, uh, Graham will drop me an email or whatever and stuff, but I mean, a uh, long time ago, long time ago. Um, oh, I'll take another question for you. Um, do, 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 do. Kevin Bremner, have you had the chance to catch a still Marillion gig? And if so, what did you think of them? Um, I don't know which one I saw. Uh, I went into Edinburgh. I was invited into Edinburgh. It could have been still Marillion. It could have been still Marillion. But it was, uh, they were playing in a cellar in a, in a pub in, in Edinburgh. And I, I took my daughter in. And it was, it was a really bizarre experience. I mean, really strange. It was like... It was like having a flashback on an old acid trip. It was, um, you know, I went into the, the same kind of dingy kind of cellar that we used to play in 1982, right? And there was a guy that was kind of sounding like me and it was, it was like having a kind of weird dream, you know? And, you know, he's painted up and all the bits in between the songs, he was kind of mimicking you and copying exactly what you said as you're interested in the songs. And I'm going, oh, you know... And it was, it was just a very strange out-of-body experience for me. You know, it was all very clever and, you know, the guy hit all the notes and stuff, but, you know, but it wasn't us. <laughs> but then again, it's not really supposed to be, is it? But, um, but yeah, I mean, tribute bands, I mean, I kind of... Uh, tribute bands, I've got a funny kind of thing with tribute bands. I've not seen the Big Floyd ones that people have said they're absolutely brilliant. I've been told that the Genesis, one of the Genesis ones uh, is, is supposed to be excellent, you know, but um, I, th I think what used to get to me was like, you know, when we were trying to book gigs and, you know, you're, you're going into gigs and you're trying to get a Friday night or whatever, you know, because you know that you'll get better numbers there. And, you know, sometimes when you've gone in and it's like, a Thin Lizzy tribute or a Stone Roses tribute or, you know, Led Zeppelin, you know, and you, you just kind of go like, you know, a lot of the people that are doing those gigs, a, a lot of people, and no disrespect to these musicians, right? But a lot of them kind of work during the week and we're out there working full time on it. 
And sometimes when you see a lot of these gigs getting taken up by the tribute bands, you can, uh, it, it does get a bit frustrating, you know. But, you know, I understand it. You know, people, those bands aren't touring again and people want to hear, you know, have a few beers and, and listen to somebody you know, trying to play the songs and all the rest of it. I find, you know, I wish, you know, some of the musicians, I've, I've seen a couple of these tribute bands and there's been some, some tasty musicians in there. You know, well, write your own stuff. You know, I'd like, you know, but bye-bye. This. I mean, tribute bands, I mean, I wouldn't, I would never go out of my way to see a tribute band. You know, I mean, fair enough. It's a kind of an homage in a way, but I mean, you know, we wrote it. You know, it's, it's always reminded of that, that, um, it was it the bad news guy when he was, he's been interviewed. He said, ah, oh, Jimmy Page, like, you know, he said, uh, didn't write that till he was uh, 30. I was playing it when I was 21, right? And it's like, yeah, Jimmy Page wrote it, which is obviously the gag, and I think that's kind of where I go with, with tribute bands. It's, uh, it was, there was one down at Harrington. <laughs> it was one down at Harrington, and it was Elvis Presley and Roy Orbison, I think it was, right? And it was the same guy. <laughs> guy did an Elvis Presley tribute, and Roy Orbison. You know? No, I'm not a big fan of tribute bands. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, you know, fair enough, they do what they do, you know, but I mean, I wouldn't go out my way to see them. Let's move on. Uh, Sandy Handley, Fishley Idol. Are you re reading books at the moment? Which one? Yes, I am. And it's quite a creepy one. Well, it's just creepy. It's as far as... It's called uh, Travellers in the Third Reich. And it's all about people that visited Germany um, from round about the 1920s up to the rise of uh, national, national Socialism, the Nazi Party, Hitler, and um, right up to the beginning of the, the Second World War. And it's fascinating. And it's about people's attitudes towards what they were seeing and how they, they took on board and, and, and how Germany changed through that period. And it's, it's, it's creepy because I see a lot in this kind of populism thing that's going on and in various countries in the world. And um, there's, a, there's like, a, you can see how some people have kind of poached from the kind of the rule book of what they did back in the 1930s. And you can see where the um, the tensions were. You can see how the economic uh, trough that people were trying to climb out of, and um, or the pit that they were trying to climb out of. And um, it's a it's a very scary book because of that. You know, because um, you can see so many parallels between what was happening in the nineteen thirties and 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 what's happening now. And, uh, it, it, and and I love I love uh, history books. I love historical books. So it's kind of hit me in both areas. But um, reading recently, it's the same Steinbeck. The next one on the, on the cards is a Steinbeck book. I want to go back into Steinbeck again. But like I said, this you know travels in the third Reich, and it was recommended to me by Callum Malcolm, who and it was a great recommendation. Uh, Simon Farquhar, hello Simon Farquhar. Where are you? Oh. Simon Farquhar was asking about 
early lyrics about things that hadn't been used. Um, and you remember, there was a, there's a wee story about this one. The first two books that I had, my first two main lyric books were kind of big kind of office A4 things with line pages. And uh, they were the first two main lyric books. And it must have been my birthday and I'm just trying to think when it would have been. It was probably, it could have been, Arneson was around, so it must have been 1983. And I think we were doing something at the Marquee Studios or something, and I'd been given a, a load of birthday presents and stuff, and they were all in the back of his car, which was parked outside the Marquee Studio in this basically dead-end alley vibe, right? The loading bay for the, for the Marquee Club. And somebody broke into it and they stole a bunch of stuff. But one of the things they stole was my, my lyric books. It was a bag that had my, my lyric book in it. And uh, I was really, really pissed off about that. And it showed up again and it was returned to me. Um, and the guy who'd nicked it had thrown it over a railway embankment and the book eventually came back to me. And it's somewhere, it's somewhere in the attic. It's a book that I've never used or gone back to for a long, long time. And yes, there are a couple of bits and pieces in there. I mean, I think there's probably the original tentative lyrics for things like Snow Angel and Hern Hunter and things, you know, where I was playing about trying to get lyrics for those early Marillion stuff, but I mean, there's nothing of consequence. And Simon mentioned there was a, a, a story because Keith Goodwin, who's my press officer, he kind of challenged me to write a, a children's Christmas story and I wrote something about a mouse. Uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I, I read it again three or four years ago and it wasn't very good. <laughs> I think I'd been drinking at the time. So, uh, but I mean, but I mean, lyrics, I've got lots of books now. I don't have like, there isn't a definitive lyric book. Normally at the start of an album project, I'll get a new book and I'll, I'll, I'll use that to, to take down notes and, and write things as I go along. Um, and it's a, uh, but I mean, as a, an actual kind of definitive book, it's, as a definitive book, it's, um, there's no single book now that contains all the lyrics. It's like loads of volumes. And there's a couple of, there's a couple of things that I've put out that are, and I'm just, there's a, there's a couple of, um, a couple of diaries that I wrote when I was on holiday and I, I kept, I, I wrote some very personal stuff in these diaries, which may go into the autobiography somewhere along the line. Uh, I've lost the things, where's the question things? I've, have we got it again? I lost the feed. Oh, I've got Yana Anderson, yes, biography, yeah, 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 yeah. Would you ever use the Jester or Magpie on an album cover again? Stuart Page from Folkestone. Uh, I think Mark's got a little game on the Velschmerz album. He's not really told me about it, but he said he's given a little nod on the final page. But I mean, I'm not kind of really intent on going back and revisiting imagery. Like, I'm not really intent on going back and revisiting the band again, sorry to say. So I just, you know, anyway. No. Louis Haddon Lowe. Gunnar Weidner, 
don't let KC go to the third division again. Yeah, <laughs> football. Let's just yeah, KSC. I used to go um, uh, a Karlsruhe Sporting Club. Um, I used to go and see Karlsruhe play KSC play a lot of times when I was when Simona when I was out with Simona in um, uh, Germany, and when I'd go across there for like three, four weeks and they were playing at home, we'd go to the home games and it was great. And then it was, uh, and I really liked the club. I upset a lot of German fans, the fact that I liked the club, the same way as if I liked Arsenal or Liverpool or whatever, like, you know, there's always somebody. But KSA were kind of like quite a funky little team. And they reminded me of Hibs in the fact that like, one time they were like a really big club and then went to the depths for all the same reasons that went to the, Hibs went to the depths for and then kind of climbed back out again. But they're always kind of, just about to do it. It's a very Scottish team. Just about to do it. I'm gonna get with it. Steve, stop texting me. Uh, um, ten past seven. Moving into playbacks time. Bruno Del Tom, Hern the Hunter from what I remember was one of the most interesting tracks from your first practice. No, no. It wasn't particularly great. It was a really iffy camel type song. And, and I mean, I, I said before on a previous podcast, it's like anything that's any good, we use. If it's no good, that's why it's not used. So, and I don't do, as I said, this Bruce Springsteen, write 30 songs and pick eight for the album. We don't do that. We go to write an album. You know, we, we go to write an album, which, you know, in, in these days and in the present kind of, um, music business, you know, it's unusual and I'd prefer to remain unusual, you know. It's like, you know, putting tracks out, just, you know, you know, just putting tracks out, it's, I don't just go and write tracks, you know, I, I mean, I really aim to get an album that's a whole movie together, you know, so that's where it's... Ah... Sarah Park, how did the brilliant duet come about with Sam Brown? Um, Sam had known for for quite a while, off and on through various things. And when we were looking for a vocalist, I mean, originally, um, originally on the Just Good Friends thing, when we did Internal Exile, it was discussed as being a duet. And this is just... It's one of them things that kind of pops in your head. You go, ah, I remember that. When we did Just Good Friends originally, uh, we were talking about it being a duet. And when Chris Kimsey was producing, and there was the obvious person was, was Kate Bush. And I, think, and I think an approach was made to Kate Bush at that time. And it did, didn't work out, but there was, a, there was a couple of other singers. But when we came to doing the, um, uh, when we came to doing the, the, the re-recording for the, the Yin Yang albums, for the, that lot, it was, um, Sam was right to the forefront. It was like, yeah, Sam would be perfect this. And that was, I was really, really disappointed with that, with that as a single. Really, I mean, I think it's a fantastic song. It was written by Frank Usher. It's one of the very few songs that, that I put together where that Frank Usher was involved with. And uh, I thought it was a, a fantastic song. I thought it was a crossover song. I thought it could have perhaps done well in America, even in the, the country Western market. And, um, but it just never happened. It just, you know, 
I think, you know, maybe, as I've said before about being with EMI and being with a big machine, you know, when you do have, you know, a big record company that's sitting there at the back of stuff, then it's a lot easier for it to be fed into areas where it's meant to be heard or where it can be heard. And I think Just Good Friends, we just didn't have, I mean, Dick Brothers just did not have the the wherewithal and didn't have the the finances to really kind of blow something like that out and into, you know, big wide open spaces for it to be seen heard. And um, and I think maybe that was what, was what it was. But, you know, maybe it's a song that somewhere along the line, you know, maybe a film director hears and goes, wow, that's brilliant. And it goes in a movie in the same ways that's what happened to The Proclaimers. I mean, The Proclaimers weren't really doing anything. And then I think it was 500 Miles. And uh, some a film director had 500 Miles and bam, there was America for them. And, you know, stranger things happen. You know, stranger things happen. But... Paul Cavender, what about the Madcaps Embrace? <coughs> yeah, Madcaps Embrace was another song. I can't even remember that one. But I think that became something else. Uh, that was a song that was going to be... It was Madcaps Embrace was a song, a lyric that was written. It was about Sid Barrett. I probably got the lyric, but it's up in the book in the act, and I'm not going up there. Because if I go up there, there'll be spiders. <laughs> this big. Right. Uh, Tony, Tom Smith, any chance misplaced Children Deluxe will be reissued? It's very expensive on eBay. Not that I know. I've got no idea. Warners are Warners. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I was told, uh, I think when Misplaced came out, I think they did do a rerun. Um, but the whole idea with the Warners Deluxe versions, like the script uh, vinyls and the Blu-rays that we've still got here, um, you know, once they're gone, they go into legacy editions, which are kind of toned down, and the Blu-ray disappears, and all the extras disappear. So, you know, it, it's one of the problems you have with, with eBay and, you know, the modern the modern music fan. You know, there's so many people that that have albums as assets. You know, not, they don't have them as albums, they have them as assets. And, you know, they'll, they'll buy two something. I mean, somebody was saying that the mask book, right, it was, it was somebody recently was saying the mass book was in sale on eBay for something like three. It was a journalist. It was a, 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 a Belgian journalist that did an interview a few days ago. And he said he really wanted the mass book. And he said he found it on eBay and it was like 300 quid, 400 quid. And I'm going like, bah. And it's like, we have it on fishmusic.scot, right? And it's like, this is a, one of the problems that does occur when you don't have that kind of breadth of profile. It's that when people go out and they go hunting on their usual grounds like eBay and they find a fish item, they go, oh, oh, it's a fish item for like, you know, there's a remaster for 60 quid, I'll buy it. And they don't go back and, and look back at where they've got here. So fishmusic.scot is kind of where the remasters are at. And so if you're looking for anything, check our site out first before you go to eBay because there are some, there's some scallywags out there, real, real bad, bad scallywags. And it's like, Script for Jester's ear. Script for Jester's ear. <laughs> that should have been script for Jester's ear. <laughs> yeah, so it'll say, what was it? Plague of Ghosts, right? It's when I brought out the Rain Gods with Zippo's album, Plague of Ghosts. People got caught, Plague of Goats. It's a, yeah, it's a Plague of Goats, mate. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
So, it's quarter past seven. So, I'm going to play you uh, a bit of a track. I'm going to, I'm going to skip it forward a wee bit because you can't hear the, whole, the, the full version. I can't start playing full versions down at you because they take too long. This is about an eight and a half minute uh, track. It's the opening track of the album, right? And it's called Grace of God. And never have I had a lyric that I've written about just about nine months ago, right? I've, I've kind of put this together. This lyric is just, it's so now. It's, uh, it's incredible. And it was, it, it, it's actually, it could be about a, a situation that's happening today in, in any hospital. And it was written when I was in, or it was kind of inspired when I had sepsis twice last year. And if it hadn't been for my wife, Simona, I wouldn't be here talking to you. I mean, uh, twice I was in a blue lighted ambulance in at the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh. And the second time the, the paramedic said I was an hour and a half of tilting into like a very, very, very bad place. And, uh, and I was in the hospital and I was in a ward with some guys and, you know, and I was, I was kind of moving into writing mode. And um, a lot of the, the stuff that I, I, that's in this lyric actually came from observations that, uh, that happened when, when I was in the Royal Infirmary under the beautiful help of my, the nurses that really took a huge deal of care with me at that time. And, um, and it was kind of looking at other people and seeing other people's situations. And that was where the entire idea for Grace of God. So all the, the little things that, that you hear are all kind of uh, um, little pickups on, on the Royal back then. And uh, it's, I love it as a track, but I'm gonna try and skip through it a bit, so. It's me, it's tech. You know where um, it goes wrong, right? Playing it too loud because it was complete.
That was Grace of God from the new album by Velchmerts. By Velchmerts called Fish. By Fish called Velchmerts. It's coming in September. Yeah, so yeah, but it's, if you actually heard it, these are Kef speakers, by the way. Absolutely gorgeous. And um, I, I, when I get the mixes through from Callum, I play them on little uh, speakers on the PC. Then I bring them through here, and believe me, that song on these speakers, when it's turned up loud, is phenomenal, right? And that's MP3 that's not even mastered yet. And I'm, 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 when I heard it last night, I just went, wow, this is incredible. And it's real brass and real strings, um, which is going to make it well worth the wait. It's, it's nice having real musicians playing on real albums again. It's good fun. It's good fun. So, uh, but yeah, so Grace of God was kind of very inspired by, you know, my visits to the hospital and things, but it just, it's just so relevant now. I mean, it's funny, funny, somebody actually said to me, uh, when I, I posted the lyrics up on the Facebook page a while back, and they said, like, you know, nebulizer, what's a, what's a nebulizer? What is, what are you using nebulizer? Now people know what nebulizers are, you know? And it's that whole thing, coughing like a drowning man, you know, they will burn me at the stake. They will burn me at the stake. Jero reminds me of Manchmal. Nah, not really. Uh, you see the like people of Phil, Falker Backers, Patrick Riddell, Mark Hancock, Vinicio Lombardi, Alan Dawson, Paul Gaffer, Gary Jones, Gwana Rowan, Pete, Steve Smith, Rudy O'Keefe, Daniel Dashworth. Glad you liked it. Good. Right, I'll go back to the questions again. I'll play, another, I'll play something else this week. Callum's actually working on Rose of Damascus at the moment. Um, by the way, we actually played uh, that track live and uh, we opened up the Aberdeen show at the Lemon Tree, the only UK show we played. We opened up at the Lemon Tree with that and it was brilliant live. It was, uh, it was amazing to sing. It was just an incredible held dynamic to it. Just the energy is just holding back, which is kind of... Blue Nihilish in a way, which Carla Malcolm, my producer, did. And it's kind of that restrained, you know, it's very up there and restrained. Um, uh, Klaus Schultz, I'm greatly looking forward to Fishing Friday. Welcome, Klaus Schultz. And let's see what Simona is cooking tonight. Simona! Yeah. What's on the, what's been cooking tonight? Homemade pizza. Can't go, go come through, speak to the camera and tell them. What's in the menu tonight, darling? Homemade pizza. <laughs> pizza and beer. It's gonna be Friday. So one of its great homemade pizza. It's really, really classy. So Claire Schultz, that's what we're having to eat tonight. Uh, Anthony Doherty, High Fish. Apparently Black Sabbath's Paranoid was written and recorded in under an hour as he needed one more song for the album. The internet has changed the music business and the album releases are more sporadic and the focus is on touring. There is no pressured writing anymore. Do you think we have missed out on some magic? I don't know. I, th I think you know, it depends on, on the musician. I think it depends on the artist, you know. Some people are quite happy doing things a track at a time, releasing, especially the younger guys. I'm not. I, I, I tend to focus on an album. I mean, partly with Angels was put out with having Waverly Steps 
uh, Little Man What Now and Man With A Stick On It, the three new tracks, which are all on the Velschmitz album, by the way. But Callum, uh, Malcolm, is remixing all three tracks to the same kind of... He's revisiting everything to the mix that you just heard on... on um, with the mix that you just heard on Grace of God. It's, it's revisiting all the mixes, so they're going to sound very different on the thing. But, I mean, Pile of Angels as, as an EP was put out because it helped plug a gap. I think as people were wondering what the hell I was doing and I wanted to let people know what I was doing and that we weren't just sitting here lying going, you know, it's, there's, there's an album coming out, there's an album coming out. There, you know, we were working and I think having Parley out just reinforced, you know, people's belief in what we were doing and gave an indicator as to kind of the quality songs. And I mean, Little Man What Now, I mean, Little Man What Now on the Parley with Angels EP is brilliant. But with the remastered or the remixed version of Little Man What Now, you know, I think it's going to sound absolutely stunning. So, I mean, uh, but, you know, they were tracks, as I said, that they fitted a purpose at the time. Parlour with Angels, in retrospect, was a great idea because financially it gave us a bit of, it gave me just a tiny lift at the time I needed it because that was all before I was derailed by the sepsis and, you know, there was a lot of things happened between the release of Parley with Angels and the next sessions of Elchberg. So Parley it saved my ass, basically, at that time. So, um, but I mean, touring, I mean, you know, back in the early 80s, when you, you did an album, you know, the tour was there to promote the album. So the record company went out and gave you all the promotion and, and you did all the promotion, you know, and you did the tour dates and that told people about the album. Whereas now it's completely the other way around. And that you now do, an, you do, you, you actually put an album out to promote the tour because people are making so little money from uh, recorded product, which is why I've got, you know, the little cap on, on Spotify now, as much as I hate it, you know, it's there. You know, it's another option. It's another way of trying to, you know, earn a living because, I mean, when you consider that Vigil in the Wilderness and Mirrors did half a million copies by... Uh, um, by 1991, after about, well, after about six months, seven months of release, it done half a million. It's like, you know, if I could do half a million with Velchmas, you know, I would be, I would be hysterically laughing. Uh, but uh, you, we don't do that. You know, as I said, there are 60,000 people who follow me on Spotify, but it does not necessarily mean that 60,000 people are going to buy the Velchmas album. You hope you, they do, and you hope that there's a lot more people will go out and eventually buy this album when it comes out, but you don't, you know, you can't basically pin all your hopes on that kind of stuff. Just because somebody listens to you on Spotify does not mean they buy an album. And the reason I moved to the digital format was because having the tracks out on Spotify was advertising the tours. And it was people going like, oh, well, you know, I go on Spotify and I'll listen to something for free and take a chance in it rather than buying something. And again, that's the hope that people hear Spotify and hear a track and go, I'm going to buy an album. And that's what you've got to hope for, that people hear something and buy a remaster. And that's, you know, where we go. But I mean, the whole recorder product thing is, is, is a lot more difficult. And if I didn't, if, the only way I can make money at a recorder product, the only way I can afford putting a string section on or a brass section on is because I sell them independently. Because if I was with a major record company, I wouldn't have the budget that I've used on this album, right? Nowhere near. I would have been cut dead halfway through what I've actually, you know, invested in this album so far. But that's the way I choose to do it. Not whining, not complaining. This is the way I do it, you know. But, uh, 
Favourite studio album to record at the four from the Marillion era to record. I don't really enjoy recording's not where I, I really I really enjoy things. I enjoy when it all starts to come. I enjoy the writing and enjoy the, the building process. And then when it goes up to the studio, you know, it goes in a world where it's kind of taken away from you. It's a bit like being a script writer and then having your script finally accepted for a movie. Then other people are going to get on board and, and it's kind of... You know, I think, you know, when you, when you write music and, and, you know, producer comes in, I mean, you know, I'd use Callum because Callum interprets. He knows inside my head what I'm kind of looking for. He knows what Steve Ansis and I are looking for when we, we write songs. But, I mean, you know, when you've got drummers in, like the, 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 the kind of standard of Craig Blundell, when you've got a guitarist like John Mitchell or Robin Bolt, you know, you you can guide them into places, but, you know, I don't sit there and pick and go, oh, was that right? Da, da, da. It's not what I do. So something told me a long time ago, it's like, there's no point having a dog and barking yourself, you know? It's like, you bring these guys in to bring something to the project because you know they can bring something to the project. So you kind of let, you give them a lot, a lot of free reign when it goes in there. At the end of the day, it's still my decision on the mix. And if I don't like something, if I really don't like something, I will say, I really don't like that and I don't want that on the album or this has got to be done differently. And so at the, the end of the day, but during the recording process, you know, you're kind of, you're a bit of a loose end and, I end up walking out in the garden quite a lot because there's nothing I can really bring to the party because it's already been brought to the party. And now, uh, so the recording process is not something I really enjoy. I love the live catharsis. I love being on a stage and, and having the energies and having the people in front of me and, and things. And, you know, and that's often why, you know, a lot of songs change when they go out live. I know a lot, a lot of the Marillion material the live versions of some of the, I mean, you listen to the live version of Forgotten Sons on, on Real or Real, that's brilliant, right? That is one of my favourite all-time versions of that song. But I mean, on the album, it's quite staid, you know? And I think it's, it's the energies that come out on a stage and, and everything you put into it that it's very difficult to bring into a studio because, you know, as Callum Malcolm's often pulled me up on, you know, when I'm singing, it's like, it's a bit less Bruce Springsteen, a bit less Bruce Springsteen. Because, you know, sometimes I go and bail it out, but it's a bit like, you know, when you're, when you're acting and you've got the camera close, you don't have to do a lot of movements to make it work, a lot of facial movements. You know, you don't have to, you know, you're, not, you're playing theatre and playing a movie is completely different. Theatre is big movements, you know, camera work, and that's kind of like where studio and live is, you know. Live, theatre, studio is more camera. You know, the, the, the microphone is, is your kind of camera in a way, and, and you've... You know, it's other little nuances and things you bring in and, and you don't have to go big, right? So I, I prefer live to studio. Out of all the, the studio albums with Marillion, probably Misplaced Childhood was the most fun because of the environment we were in. Because, uh, because of Hans' Studios, which is, if you've not caught it, Try and catch the Hansen Studios uh, documentary on uh, on Sky Arts. It's brilliant. It's very interesting. So, but I mean, you know, Berlin in '95 was an interesting place. So that kind of came into the equation regarding recording. Um, Clutch at Straws was a really difficult album to put together. We were working around different studios. I, I didn't enjoy the recording on Clutch at Straws one bit. It was. It was. I've got no real great memories at that time. It was. A lot of conflict, all, a lot of bad attitudes, and there was a lot of uh, 
bad influences around at that time. Um, so, I mean, that's not enjoyable. It's, as a track, because it runs on to here. Um, uh, the favourite song, you, said, um, you know, Danny Matos uh, Torrenteras, you said in the past that the song that defines Marillion is Incubus. What was the song in your solo career that best defines you lyrically and sonically? Uh, P.S. Do not shave the beard. <laughs> it's coming off. Incubus, I love as a song. I, I think uh, as, a, as a, a concise piece of kind of musical theatre, I think it's, it's brilliant. You know, it had everything that, you know, that, that to me summed up Marillion. It had the big awesome ending, it had the intricate piano, it had that intense vocal, and it had that, that kind of earthly kind of push to it all, you know. And it rocked as well, you know, and it was, uh, you know, and I, I think it was, it, it kind of brought everything. That, that song, that song and Fugazi, I, I really liked the, the, the Fugazi as a track. As a solo song, I don't know. I've got, I've got no ideas because they all come from different areas. As I said, Just Good Friends, Gentlemen's Excuse Me. I mean, uh, Grace of God is, is a big favourite. Um, Gardener Remembrance, uh, which is the, kind of the big ballad of this album. You know, that's, that's really sitting well. Ever since I've seen the David Lamb video, you know, it sits stronger in the hand. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult with the soul stuff. I'd love to revisit Plaguey Ghosts. I'd love, you know, you talk about re-recordings. It's like, I'd love to, I think when I do my farewell tour, I'd really like to put Plaguey Ghosts back in it and rework it and completely rework that song and, and, and rejig it, rearrange it. And because I think lyrically it's, it, it, lyrically it's got a lot of dynamic in it and you know, the song as a whole, it runs through a lot, a lot of different dimensions. And I'd love to pull them tighter and accentuate some, but you know, that's a by the by. Right. It's 20 to eight, it's pizza time. Uh, let's go on to the last question. What have we got for a suitable last question? Uh, suitable last question. Tiki Four, and I was Paul of Malta. Yeah, Tiki Four and Live in Malta. That was a song that kind of went missing. That was really cool. Um, there's been some other questions about songs that, I've, to be honest, I'm just running out of time to do, but I'll do them again next week. I'm, I'm doing this every week. Some, somebody actually said, you should do this regularly. I do. Um, every Friday at six o'clock, I'll be here. And, you know, doing Q&As, play a bit of some of the, 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 the new material, whatever. Um, and uh, Rob Scarron, hi Rob, uh, Rob's on about taking the audio from this and using it in an audio podcast so that people can listen to it when you eventually get to go to the gym, unless you've got one in Georgia, right? But, um, but that's kind of, see there's a simple question in here. Uh, what is your favourite dinosaur? I've done that one. I've done the dinosaur question. Um, Nah, there's nothing simple. I'm going to leave it at that. The Erdinger's almost empty and I'm going to the Wicht. Um, it's my birthday tomorrow. I'm 62. Um, I really appreciate all your best wishes. As birthdays, I don't know about you on Facebook, but like, as soon as your birthday happens, it's like your timeline just goes mental. It's like, 
I appreciate it. That's why I was going to take my birthday off it to try and save my timeline. But uh, it's my birthday. I hate birthdays. I don't like birthdays one little bit. And, you know, tomorrow we're going to roast lamb. I'm going to be in the garden. Um, Simona and I are going to be sowing some flower seed and putting a load of veg seed in and taking care of it. It's a weekend. It's going to be peaceful. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to my wheats and sitting out in the garden in the sun, hopefully. As I said, we are so lucky to be here in this place. This is like a little mini paradise and I'm just locked away on this little island of tranquility and all the madness, you know. I watch the madness on CNN at half 10, 11 o'clock every night just before I go to bed, just to remind me. And, um, you know, it's horrible out there. Um, I hope it gets better, the numbers are crap. Um, but we just got to get on with it. Like I said, find your silver linings, find stuff to do. I'm looking at getting on a cross trainer this week, so I'll probably be doing this from lying on my back on the floor next week. But I've got a garden to do, I've got cross trainer, I've got mixes to listen to do, I've got yoga to contemplate, I've got loads of other things to do. I'm lucky, you know, my mum's healthy, stepson's healthy, it was lovely to just catch up with my daughter from a distance this week. Um, we got families. I miss them all crazy, crazy. Um, you know, miss my friends. Uh, but there it is. We're here. Um, we got the space. We're alive. And all of you, just, you know, stay chilled. Um, just take care of yourselves. Listen to all the rules. Don't inject yourself with any disinfectant or anything or like, you know, start snorting fairy liquid. It's not a good idea. It's a rubbish idea. Don't know who said it, idiot. Um, but just take care and stay alive and look after yourself. And until then, uh, just watch what you do. Goodbye.